0: Hello there. This is Juan Carlos and we are listening to Linux for Everyone in Caracas, Venezuela. Welcome home. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Linux for Everyone. I am your uh, completely out of hiatus host, Jason Evangelo, and this, as you may remember, is a show about the exciting world of desktop Linux and open source software and the community creating it. I have missed you. (laughs) You know, the last episode of Linux for Everyone, the last proper episode was recorded November 2021, and... When I stopped to think about how much the world has changed since then, I mean, the Steam Deck launched. Uh, we were still very much in the midst of a global pandemic. The, uh, the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine hadn't even started yet. Chat GPT wasn't even a thing. And now it's part of so many conversations across so many industries. And I've changed a lot, too. I honestly don't remember if I told you the show was going away or going on hiatus uh, here on the actual show or if I had just announced that on, on social platforms. What what I need you to understand is that I was struggling with burnout. I was burnt out. I wasn't struggling with it. I was burned out. And it had been an ongoing struggle for a while. That's why uh, I had tried to sort of reinvent the show with additional co-hosts and Shickle and Jerry. I will forever be grateful to your contributions during that time. uh you did help me keep the show alive, which I very very much appreciate but yeah in in a way my 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 drive and my creativity was also crushing me um I was trying to grow everything. Too fast, I was trying to launch new brands, you know, launch tech for everyone and make it Linux and I make foss and and all these things were happening, so many wheels were spinning, so many plates were up in the air, and at the same time i was um I was trying to make a full time living off of the Linux for everyone brand. I was trying to produce enough videos and enough shows and and retain sponsors so that I could keep putting food on our table. And the pressure of that, uh, it just got to me. And that's why I decided I have to get a quote-unquote day job. I have to find something that is going to be financially stable. And something where um, that financial stability wasn't dictated by by, you know, a fickle YouTube algorithm, or a video popping, or a sponsor signing up for a few months. And the happy ending here is that I did find that work, and I found it with Mozilla. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I have been, uh, since last April or May... Since April or May 2022, I have been the marketing manager for Thunderbird, and I know you've all heard heard of Thunderbird, the open source mail client that's been around since uh, since 2003, and and in a previous incarnation called Mozilla Messaging. Um, and so I'm also doing I'm doing a podcast called the Thundercast. I host and produce that alongside my colleagues over there, uh, Ryan Sipes and Alex Castellani. Now let me read you the description of the Thundercast, an inside look at the making of Mozilla Thunderbird, and community-driven conversations with our friends in the open-source software space. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Where have I heard about that basic premise before? And um, so fast forward, well, fast forward, sure. Fast forward to a few weeks ago, and I attended my first Linux App Summit, LAS, in Brno, Czechia. I have to tell you, it felt like a family reunion. There was such a warmth and such a passion for Linux and open source there. And it's what finally pushed me over the edge to to truly, truly missing doing this show, doing Linux for Everyone. And I also got really fired up uh, about a particular topic that I had never thought about before. It was a talk that was given at LAS about software sustainability. And the man giving it, Joseph, was with KDE, is with KDE. And um, I'm not gonna say too much about this up front because he is our amazing special guest for this episode, episode 58. But the bottom line is all of these things coalesced into this burning desire to uh to to start up the show again, to power it back on, and and use the platform to to say things that that need to be said and share things that need to be shared. So I now believe that that in the interest of keeping Linux for Everyone healthy and thriving and um and, and alive and continuing, that it's best not to monetize this brand and this show. So there won't be any more Patreon. Uh, for for the time being, there won't be any more merch. And I'm not going to kill myself to stick to a schedule. You know, um. When I feel like I have something important to share or, or something awesome from the Linux and open source community to share, I will press record, I'll invite people on, and we'll release a new episode. And I'm also changing the license type of this show. It's always been under a traditional copyright, and it is now Creative Commons. And it's specifically a uh, Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Alike License. I'm doing that because I want to invite you, the community, who has always supported this show and always believed in my journey and, and the you know the enthusiasm that I have for for sharing this stuff with people, and um, yeah, I want to I want to invite you to start participating somehow, some type of community-driven Linux for Everyone show. Um, I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm very open to ideas. So let's talk about it. You can find me on uh, Mastodon. You can also email me, everyone at pm.me. But check the show notes, and I'll have links to my uh, Mastodon account and that email. Anyway, Linux for Everyone is an important platform, and I want it to continue. Even if I'm not always the one behind the microphone, there is so much collective knowledge and collective passion out there from everyone who listens to the show and everyone who participates in the community. And um, I want to get all of that revived and I want to somehow try to harness all of these great things that everyone's working on um, and and have the community's help for doing that. And so that's why I think that changing the license type and basically demonetizing the brand and inviting community to participate somehow is, is the most important thing going forward. So with that necessary monologue out of the way, let me turn the spotlight to my conversation with Joseph DeVogais. And if you're anything like me, this could very well be a shocking, eye-opening call to action. Enjoy the conversation, and I will come back on the other side with some closing comments. I am absolutely thrilled uh, that you have chosen to, to be part of this, I don't know if I want to call it a rebirth, but we can definitely call it the end of the, uh, the Linux for Everyone hiatus. Go ahead and just introduce yourself real quick and, and tell everybody what you do.
1: So my name is Joseph DeVolgeis. Um I work at KDE in uh, the KDE-ECO project, which is a project uh, focusing on sustainability um, in software design. Um, I've been working for KDE for about uh, almost two years now. Um, So I started in July 2021. In my former life, I was a researcher uh, working in experimental and theoretical linguistics. Uh, So a very different field, Um, but I've been a long time... FOSS enthusiast coming at it mostly from a sort of political and social angle um people who uh who know me who aren't software developers think that I'm a super user people who are software developers know that I'm not (laughs) um I just like to uh I like to change configuration files and things like this but that's um yeah, but I'm 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 I believe uh, strongly in free and open source software on many levels. Um, but coming coming at it from the social and political side of things,
0: the social and political angles of of FOSS seem like they can be a little bit divisive and heated. Is has that been your experience?
1: So it hasn't been, um, but there might be a, a few reasons for that. One, I've have avoided social media. Um, or the big social media uh, platforms, um, because of my politics, because of my belief in you know privacy, I'm not active in those channels, so I'm not uh, you know that's not that's not the environment that I'm talking about these things in. Um, and in Berlin, I think there is a you know a long history of alternative, uh, I, I you know ideals about how society can be. Uh, organized differently, and there is a strong, uh, free and open source software, uh, alternative digital society um, community here, communities. Um, so so I feel that I've been in friendly waters. I also, maybe another thing is I, I try when I talk about the political and social issues related to software, I often try to find ways to relate to the um Values that people already have uh, trying to connect what I think is is there when it comes to digitization, but many people don't recognize the mm-hmm. connections um, and by making those connections usually it makes it less it's less of an effort to understand uh, where the po- political and social
0: it is it is quite a pivot going from a a theoretical and experimental linguist to uh, a very passionate a f- uh, very passionate evangelist for for software sustainability. It, but I want to, before before we go forward, I want to hear about your origin story. That's kind of a tradition here on the show is uh, finding out what makes people tick, like what their first experience was that they remember anyway, that made them fall in love with Linux and, and open source.
1: Yeah. I, I come from I was a digital skeptic until maybe two thousand and nine. And what I mean by that is I tried to avoid computers and thought of them as something that was uh taking away experiences in life somehow. It somehow I felt this shift to screens and shift away from from um you know, real life interactions. Um I, I was I was skeptical that those were good things. Um Very early on, and I I grew up in that in the era when the World Wide Web uh, was new in the early '90s, and I remember going from you know connecting to message boards, um, talking about music. That was uh, what drew me to the internet, and suddenly having uh, pictures show up. (laughs) Uh, It went from, you know, a a, a black and white or a green and, and, you know, a green colored screen with just text uh, and sort of links to uh, suddenly having images and and then later video and things like this. So I I, I saw that transition. I remember what it was like before uh, the internet became integrated into every aspect of life.
0: Yes. Okay. So I, I, I was chuckling about that because just a few days ago on the Thundercast, which is the, the Thunderbird podcast that I host, we were talking about what, what Ryan called the, the before times. And he said something that really, really stuck with me. And he said, do you remember when we used to go to the internet? Like after dinner, you know, and, and his dad would say, well, where do you want to go, son? And he'd say, hotwheels.com. You know, mm-hmm. you intentionally went to the internet and then you left the internet, and it was such a it was such a different experience than just being surrounded by the internet twenty four seven.
1: And and having a, a a digital correlate to every aspect of of our analog life. So so I'm I'm fascinated by those things, and it, and it's they were always a part. They're actually so before my studies in linguistics, I I. Um, so I started late, um, in my career in linguistics and I started learning programming and that demystified the computer. And suddenly I, I saw, Mm. um, how, how people, uh, determine what computers do and, and how we can, we can influence it and shape it. And, and, and that skepticism became a, a desire for, for, um, autonomy and, very quickly, I landed in free software. This happened you know within a year suddenly I was very uh, excited about uh, uh, Linux um, started exploring uh, various tools and this was mostly done um, outside of the university context but I was get, getting a lot of input through some of the tools we were using for uh, corpus analyses um, where you you know run scripts over large databases of language to, to get uh, mm-hmm. natural input uh, for um, a study you're doing, um, things like this, running statistics, learning statistical programming, which is, you know, it's a different kind of programming, but it was, it's still a type of programming, and giving me a sense of, um, I don't know, self-determination in the digital space that led me further and further away from proprietary software, because that did not give me any sense of autonomy, for all of the ways that it could enable certain behaviors, it also felt like it was often accompanied with something that was exploitative or abusive. And and free software was a space where it felt that computing was working for me and for the communities that I was involved in in a different way. And then there is the whole community aspect to it, which is... Um, hard to explain to someone who hasn't experienced it but there is a there are real people developing the software and you can talk to these people and and you can influence and shape the development of the software you can contribute to it yourself um, you can contribute to it in many ways if you're not a programmer you can help with uh, yes documentation. thank you can you can um, contribute images uh you know
0: yeah back in the um the first few months that I had started using Linux, and this—I'm not sure if I told you at LAS, but this was only back in 2018. I was only about two or three months into it, and my my love for it and and free software and the community like exponentially grew because every time I would reach out and and have a question about PopOS or about the development of you know the the vocal app uh, or something with Elementary or uh you know some har- some piece of Linux hardware, there was always a response from somebody or multiple people immediately mm-hmm. and there was always like this 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 comfortable dialogue that came with it and that blew my mind because I was coming from a world where I was covering um Windows and Nvidia graphics cards and you know asus and <laughs> If you could get a reply, it was always, it always came with all of these stipulations and all, you know, this like PR overlords looking over the shoulders. And <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was just a breath of fresh air, really. And, um, and that feeling of community has always stuck with me. And it's, um, I mean, it's why, it's why the tagline for this show has always been, um, exploring the, the thrilling world of, Linux and open source software and the community creating it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry gang. I haven't I haven't had a lot of time to gush and you know rant and have all these little happy thoughts with you over the last year so I've got to get some of it out. Catch up.
1: Yeah. So so that's I mean things changed. Edward Snowden changed a lot. That it was a moment of uh it became it was it went from something that I felt personally um Inspired by where then it became, I feel like I need to share this experience that I had of of gaining control over my digital life in in an in an environment in which it suddenly felt like um, we have no control and power dynamics have shifted so far um, from what I think, remembering back to the 90s and the, this idea of the internet being a you know, democratizing force. So going from, from this democratizing force to something that felt like the power structures shifted dramatically into this very uh, not democratic uh, form um, suddenly made all of this something that I wanted to share very intensely with other people. And I got involved in various uh, communities in Berlin, started a group, um, which I mentioned to you, called Slow Tech Berlin. It's inspired by slow food um, and the idea that you know cheap and fast aren't the only two values that we should evaluate technology by, hmm. that there are other values that might mean things take perhaps a little longer, they might go a little more slowly, but they're worth it because of the other values that we put into the technology that we're using.
0: So what you're saying is is thin and light laptops aren't the only thing that matters.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure, that absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, it, yeah you know what I'm level, saying yes. though. Like
0: it, the people it, it, go, "Okay, I need this because it's it's two millimeters thinner than the last model, and it has two more cores."
1: That means giving up all personal privacy and contributing to you know the tsunami of e-waste. Then no, it's not. Like that's not worth it, in my opinion. And and where that line is 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 a discussion I think we need to be having. Um, I don't want to say I have the answer to where the line is, but I think we haven't been having that conversation
0: I mean, yeah, this is exactly where the meat of this conversation begins, I think, because your talk at l a s was shocking to me it was shocking i mean it it was it was a wake up call to me, and I don't know how many others in the room felt the same way, but it has consumed my thoughts ever since ever since l a s you know, I I was I was thinking about uh the backlash that happened surrounding Bitcoin's energy usage, right? And cryptocurrency mining in general. You know, everyone was up in arms about the um the environmental toll and the the power consumption that was consumed by just a single Bitcoin transaction or, you know, the fact that the mining operations in in this area where the, uh, I don't know, some, some horrific number of, um, you know, the size mm-hmm. of a small country's annual power consumption or something, that was fair. That was perfectly fair. I'm not defending that at all. But what I'm getting at is I've always thought about things like, is my, is my PC power efficient? Is my Linux distro power efficient? But I never, until your talk, thought about things like, well, is Audacity power efficient? Mm-hmm. Is, is Jitsi power efficient? Is OBS power efficient? And I'm talking about all the three things I'm using at this moment mm-hmm. <laughs> to record this show. You know, uh, is Thunderbird power efficient? How, how, you know, how, what is the difference if I use um, Firefox versus Chrome? I, I never thought, what does software have to do with environmental issues, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: that's, that's exactly where you step in.
1: And this is—I'm—I'm I'm very uh, happy to hear that it started a thought process, um, which is hopefully going to result in more inspiration for measuring, for getting data. Because those—the questions you just asked—those are empirical questions. We can measure
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: how much energy consumption is driven by um, OBS, is driven by Jitsi, is driven by. Um, uh, other software products, and until we have uh, data, we can only speculate. The project that I, I was working for, the Blauer Angle for Foss, um, one of the things I liked in particular about um, the anchoring to the Blauer Engel Eco Certification methodology is it, it provided a clear methodology. It gave some, you know, a framework to start talking about these things, um, at least in the desktop software domain i'm glad 'm glad to hear that it left an impression and i 'm glad to hear that that you are that the, the, I, what I think are important questions we need to be asking and will lead to i think important steps being made to getting some data to getting some answers so we can start thinking about how we improve things, how we make them less environmentally harmful um, how we how we drive down energy consumption and keep hardware in use um, and find the right mm-hmm. balance between the all the benefits of digitization um, and reduce the um, uh, drawbacks.
0: Can you can you run down some of the, I guess the headlines, the highlights that that would convince people that this is a discussion that we need to be having?
1: So one example that seems to really impress people um, is the way when you scale up. energy savings, which in software, when we release, you know, a a piece of software, it gets uh, installed on millions, if not billions of people's devices. And the example I gave in the talk is, you know, one CPU second reduction in a piece of software, which is the equivalent to about uh, a 10 watt second savings, which is nothing. But once you multiply that out by even a modest number of users, um, I think the example was one point five million in the um, uh, talk I gave. You know It can quickly add up in a year to the power savings of of a, a small city uh, like Turin or Lisbon. And that kind of scaling up leaves an impression because it's it's easy to see how once you multiply by the number of users, um, which is easily in the tens or hundreds of millions for many software products. Um, these make real big
0: differences. So, my understanding of a CPU second is, um, is 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 essentially it's not it's not a literal second, right? It's just a unit of measurement that um, that tracks how long it takes a CPU core to do a transaction. And a transaction, from from what I understood, is something like if you know, imagine you're shopping on Amazon.com. You add something to your cart. That's a transaction. You add a um, shipping address. That's a transaction. Is that generally how that works?
1: I, I should go check my notes um, to make sure I'm saying it correctly. But I believe it's 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 for how long the CPU is active for. But I don't. I think it actually literally is a second. But, but this, so this example is not my own. I, this comes from uh, Detlef Toms. I believe is the name of the programmer who gives a course at the Platner Institute. Important understand, though, is that the use of CPU correlates with energy consumption. This is, um, I think, you can look at the energy consumption graphs, for example, for Ocular, um, which have been released as part of the transparency requirements of the Blue Angel um, Eco uh, label. Um, you can see the CPU and the energy consumption correlate. So, when CPU is engaged, when it's being used, you're you're also consuming energy.
0: Uh, so, I know that we have a lot of developers out there listening, and I would love to know. What is the um, the effort and the and the time involved in actually taking your software and optimizing it and shaving off those CPU seconds? You know, even one. What is what is shaving off one CPU second from your software's transactional time? Like, what does that entail? I would love to know that.
1: I saw a comment recently on Mastodon, um, which is. Eye-opening to think about is how fragile software is. That a couple of lines of code can be a difference between five percent CPU usage or hundred percent CPU usage. What? Right. I mean, it's just it can you can easily you can easily do something in a way that uh, results in you know uh, really inefficient code, and and software is extremely fragile in this sense. And you see this. You know, bugs are introduced, and suddenly. Uh, things are crashing and you know uh, freezing and things. Like I this. mean, I
0: right. I mean, I remember, uh, and this has of course happened multiple times, and I'm I'm I know it's easy to it's easy to pick on Windows, and I'm sure this has happened with Linux distros. It's just my field of vision involves seeing this happen to Windows a lot in in the news. Imagine a Windows update comes out, it's you know Patch Tuesday or whatever it's called, and there is some bug. That happens where, uh, you know, when you're booting up for the first two or three minutes, your CPU is pegged at 100 percent. Nobody quite knows why. Multiply that by 500 million users. And it's probably way more than that, right? I I think it is. Um, It's probably way more than that, right? It's probably like in the billions. That's preposterous. That's just (laughs) that's bananas to think about when we're talking about how much collective energy that mistake consumes and and the i guess the the uh, ecological footprint that that could leave
1: one area that because it also overlaps with my interest in privacy and privacy oriented software is you know all, all mm-hmm. kinds of data uh, mining and um, and uh, serving ads and um, uh, analytics and the ways that all of this follow a uh, economic logic, not a technical logic. Like these are often not processes that are necessary for the software uh, use, but for the um, you know the the uh, profits of the companies behind them.
0: Can you can you talk a little bit about the uh, the research that was done regarding advertising on cell phones in Europe?
1: Yeah. So there was a report. Um, it was for. European Union, it was like a policy report. So okay, the, the title is from 2021. And it's called carbon footprint of unwanted data use by smartphones, an analysis for the EU. And what they looked at was the environmental costs of data mining, and advertisements that users can't turn off. That's why they call unwanted data use. And right, the, they and can't
0: turn off. Okay.
1: That they can't opt out of. And they looked at the energy consumption for, I believe the number was 60% of EU citizens. And that number comes from a poll that found 60% of uh, smartphone users would turn off ads if they could. Um, And they analyzed how much energy is consumed just from that 60% of unwanted data use and the numbers are staggering this would be equal to the carbon footprint of between 370 and 950,000 EU citizens in one year
0: and, and that's looking at that's looking at things we don't think necessarily think about right it's the um it's the the servers the networks the cellular so, bands and the networks working and you know uh like i said the ripple effect the ripple effect is is Insane.
1: Yeah. And these are the kinds of things that most users aren't going to necessarily see in their own devices, energy consumption, right? This is outsourced energy consumption. It's going through networks that are being powered outside of your device. Um, and, and, And I think that's one of the ways that a lot of the environmental costs of digitization get sort of hidden from everyday users. They don't see it.
0: Yeah, and and now I'm just thinking about so many so many different aspects of our daily life. Um for example, you go to a website that's that's littered with trackers and javascript and all this, you know, stuff that loads up and pegs your CPU, right? Because it's so busy trying to load up all this garbage that maybe you're not blocking. That multiply I mean if if we're talking about something like forbes.com, which has a ton of them, which is a ton of garbage on that site, you multiply that by, I don't know, 100 million people.
1: There is a uh, art project by, I think her name was uh, Joanna Mo. Um She uh, did a analysis of how much data is transmitted when you just buy one product on Amazon.
0: Oh my God, this is going to scare the crap out of me.
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's insane. Like, I don't remember the numbers now because I didn't prepare to talk about this, but it reminded me when you're talking about this is that, I mean, they, their business relies, that business model relies on getting really uh, detailed information about consumers um, and the tracking that's happening through JavaScript um, was in megabytes of information.
0: I have it in front of me. It is called The Hidden Life of an Amazon User. And I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Uh, So it tracks the, uh, the purchase of a book. It doesn't matter which book. But in order to purchase the book, the Amazon website forces the customer to go through 12 different interfaces composed of large amounts of code. This code carries out all sorts of operations, such as organizing and styling the site's content, allowing interactivity, and recording the user's activity. Overall, I was able to track 1,307 different requests to all sorts of scripts and documents, totaling 8,700 A4 pages worth of printed code. The amount of energy needed to load each of the 12 different interfaces, along with each one's endless fragments of code was approximately 30 watt hours. That's, that's to purchase one book on Amazon and of course of course making it worse is all that code that that 8000 pages of a4 code is pretty much all used to like track your data and you know make you the product as well
1: that and it's crazy to me that this has become the the norm uh, that it's become so normal that this is the what, you know what some might call the, co- the cost of business right and and i think this is where uh, trying to think about what we would accept in other domains of life, like would this would you accept this if you went to a store <laughs> and bought a book and then found out that this is what was happening? like would you accept this, but we somehow it happens online and we do
0: yeah, yeah, I hear you, I hear you we're always talking about we're talking about the benefits of Linux and foss, right We're always extolling the virtues of you know of privacy, customization, freedom right but we are never ever ever talking about the power efficiency of a foss app versus a proprietary app why do you think that is okay well i know that we can't answer this um in any way that you know resembles a comprehensive uh answer because we just don't have the data but but do you think there is a power efficiency advantage when it comes to foss software because it's not interested in serving you ads all the time and tracking your data, and making you a product.
1: That alone, absolutely. I mean, that is going to be consuming energy, and it's it's energy consumption that's not necessary for the functionality of that software, right? So, so just the fact that that's turned off is probably already saving a, a ton of energy. One of the things that I, I, I focus on in the talks that I've been giving is the sort of inherent qualities of FOSS. It's not always in terms of just efficiency, um, but also in terms of sustainability and that sort of um, there's many components that make something sustainable. And, And the ways that free and open source software gives users the ability, for example, just to switch software products if, they want to because of data formats following open standards or interoperability as a value that that tends to exist in the free and open source software compared to uh, the proprietary software world allows users to make choices that they can't make if they're using proprietary data formats, for example. You're locked into that software whether it's efficient or not. So you've lost the ability to you know, to decide how you're computing how much energy it consumes. It may seem obvious, because with free and open-source software, we've, we've already thought about these things for decades now, um, but we haven't thought about it in terms of what does it mean if you're locked into a software product, or a company or a government is locked into a software product that is that is inefficient, right?
0: And as you pointed out at your talk, um, then you start thinking about, beyond the beyond the lack of energy efficiency, so that... That uh, unwanted data on the cell phones in the EU—that that that data point that you were talking about—you know how how much more quickly does the lifespan of a smartphone battery get reduced by that? Right? How much faster do our our PCs experience that both the drives and you know the RAM and everything and the CPU? How much faster do our our PC components experience like wear and tear due yeah. to a lack of power efficiency and? The more I go down this rabbit hole, I'm, I'm like, everything I've been doing in my daily life, I'm calling into question. I've stopped using my desktop PC. I'm not using it anymore. I have a, um, a Ryzen 3900X system with uh, 64 gigs of RAM and a really powerful Radeon RX 6800 XT, right? Just a badass gaming PC, basically, and production PC. I've stopped using it. I was doing just little... Little tiny tests. And I actually, ha- I actually have one for you. Check this I out. I would like
1: to hear more about this because you, you've been posting about it on Mastodon and it's exciting. It's exciting that you're actually...
0: <laughs> I haven't done a lot of testing yet, but I've done a little bit, okay? At 1% CPU utilization on this, on this PC, this tower PC that I have, 1% CPU dis- utilization, it consumes 67 watts. 67 watts. And like my Steam Deck... At full bore, running something as powerful as it can is using like 24, 25 watts, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Check this out. This is where it gets absolutely insane. So I ran the Dirt 5. It's a racing game. The Dirt 5 benchmark at 4K resolution on the highest preset and let the frames per second just go wild, right? It's no cap. Just go as high as you can. 430 watts of power at the wall. And then all I did was I kept the same graphic settings and I reduced the resolution to 1440p and put a 60 frames per second cap and the power was reduced almost by half, by half. Now, after your talk, now I'm thinking, oh, that extra 205 watts is a big freaking deal. When When we apply that out to like, In 2022, there were an estimated uh, 1.8 billion PC gamers. (laughs) Yeah. So now everything I'm doing, I'm like, oh, man, how how much does my computer use when it's just in a sleep state? Uh, How much power can I save if I, you know, watch a Netflix stream at 1080p instead of 4K? Like, it's just sending me into this... um, Okay, I'm going to calm down, take a breath.
1: I totally get what you're saying. And I think it's it's great that, that, that you have started thinking about these things and that you're talking about it in a podcast so other people can hear this and start thinking about it. I would add, though, that we shouldn't individualize the responsibility to make these uh, savings, these efficiency savings. I mean, of course, it's good to have individuals. But if we really want change, it needs to be at a system level.
0: It is. No, you're right. You're right. This has been a lot of doom and gloom. Can we <laughs> Let's turn it around into a little let's get a little bit of positivity in in the mix here and talk about KDE Eco that is, you know, promoting software sustainability. Well, the multiple organizations, KDE multiple. and yeah, yeah, and Blue Angel and 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 others. Can you talk a little bit about the work that that uh KDE has done in, on that front?
1: So we've really been focusing on Orienting ourselves to the Blue Angel eco label initially. Um, not only that, but that's the project that I was in was a uh, government-funded project from the German uh, government, um, from the Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety, and Consumer Protection, and they funded us uh, uh, through the Blue um, Angel, um, the German Environment Agency, um, to. Uh, Focus on spreading and collecting information related to the Blue Angel Eco label. So, so a lot of the work has been oriented to that, um, which is a particular methodology for measuring uh, desktop software, which KDE excels in, and looking at the qualities that make for software to be more sustainable. So, the KDE Eco really got started with this Blue Angel Blau angle for FOSS or BE for FOSS for short. Um, But there's other sort of projects involved in that. There's the Free and Open Source Energy Efficiency Project, um, which is more generally looking at tooling for measuring software, for running scripts, so that you can get uh, reliable data, um, so that you can replicate the uh, use um, that is driving the energy consumption, so that other people can um, also do measurements and, and hopefully replicate the data. Those are the sort of two main projects that started the Kitty Eco. And the work that I've been doing is mostly, so there's, there's in the community, um, you know, hundreds of people who are much more expert in software engineering and uh, um, all things related to this topic than I am. And I've, I've been mostly trying to organize and support and enable work in this area. And that has been mostly involved in tooling uh, for a lab and setting up a lab, which we have now set up um, and are currently supporting a student um, who is developing a remote access portal for that lab. Oh,
0: that's fantastic. So what, what do you guys measure? Like, what what is a, a typical session look like at, at that lab?
1: It's mostly in the preparation. So, so the lab, when you're actually in the lab, it's just running scripts and uh, collecting the output from an external power meter.
0: Okay. So you, you, have, you have scripts for K-Mail, right?
1: There are scripts for K-Mail, um, Ocular, and um, Krita, the natural painting program. Mm. That have been run and measured, and we have the reports. And they're available at the Free and Open Source Energy Efficiency Project repository.
0: Is it realistic to expect anyone to take that data and compare it? To um, proprietary alternatives like I, I don't know, like Outlook, um, like Adobe Reader, which is probably an absolute resource hog compared to to Ocular.
1: Absolutely. Um, so the uh, the process is easily transferable to any software product. The what will get measured using this particular process is the um, local. Uh, PC running the scripts. You're not going to get information about uh, data center processing. Um, so it's, it's not a system for measuring distributed systems. Uh, the, there is a methodology being developed right now by the Umfeld Campus Birkenfeld um, for measuring distributed systems, um, but that's not uh, right now what we're doing in the lab. So if, if they're outsourcing any processing to a data center, you'll only get information about network traffic that's also being collected in the process, but you won't get information about the energy consumption happening at the data center. But the process is easily transferable to any software product um, on uh, any computer, since it basically relies on um, an emulation script, which there are tools for, and an external power meter. Um, There's really no more magic to it. So you can take any software, uh, write a script to emulate the user behavior run that 30 times, uh, measure that um, using a power meter, and then compare that to another software product doing the same thing. Um, Of course, it has to be prepared. That's the the hardest part is preparing the scripts. If you wanna have a reliable comparison, you would want to run them um, on the same computer and ideally in similar conditions. So simple things like running a script in the afternoon when the sun may be shining might result in uh, the fans running more often than not. Ah, uh, yeah, wow. st-
0: So it's got to be a really, really controlled environment.
1: If you really want to get good comparisons, you'd have to pay attention to this or at least be transparent about it, right? So at least someone can say, oh, the data might differ because of these factors, like uh, it's a hot room. Um, it's going to influence how much energy the PC is consuming.
0: Yeah, so ideally a temperature-controlled space would be the best.
1: Um, ideally, similar conditions when running this. If you want to have a a, a fair comparison, why
0: has no one done that? I'm still baffled. I, I'm still just like, uh, what is the word? It's um, gobsmacked. You know, I'm gobsmacked that that this is not a dialogue that we see.
1: So the German uh, Environment Agency published a report from the Umwelt Campus Birkenfeld and the Öko Institute, so the Eco-Ecological Institute in Berlin, um, doing this. They compared various software products. Now, they, they did it for research purposes and didn't publish the names of the software products being tested. But there are some reports that have done exactly this, and the results are really troubling. I mean, you really see huge differences. Really, uh, the example that uh, that I used in the, in the the Linux App Summit talk is, you know, word processors.
0: Undisclosed commercial word processor.
1: Exactly, the, the, yes. the <laughs> Um, You know, who knows which word processor that was, but it's a proprietary one. So (laughs)
0: it does not rhyme with bird.
1: Um, And we're talking about, you know, four times the energy consumption. And really, when you look at the the energy consumption over time, it even becomes even more, you know, troubling that you see when the software is no longer being asked to do anything from the usage scenario script, it's still doing things.
0: At this point, it it seems, I mean, it seems like we are in such a... uh, you know the the infant stages of this of the awareness of this situation you know ab- about well about sustainable software about the eco footprint of software through your various devices um as you mentioned earlier it's it's good to you know on an individual basis um to maybe cut those corners and you know pull back the power usage if you can but I think it sounds like what we need right now is more advocacy, more people like you appealing to developers.
1: And creating a culture of sustainability in software.
0: How do people get involved?
1: So I'm focused right now on, I think, getting data. I think we can talk about this in an abstract way, um, and that's important, but to make decisions, to really make data-driven decisions. We need to test and measure. When we talk about sustainability, it's not, in many cases, it's not talking about um, saving the planet. Um, As uh, someone pointed out recently, um, it's really about reducing some of the harm or or making things less worse, Um, but it's still, you know, it's still costing something. And to just talk about relative harm, you know, which uh, which decisions do we make and what is the harm and which is the, you know, the least worst option? We need data.
0: The least worst option. Oh, geez.
1: Because, because all of them are going to, you know, when we compute, at least given the fact that most of our energy is not being provided by, you know, carbon-free sources, um, it's costing something. It's costing something to the environment and it's costing something you know in energy consumption and 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 uh, hardware production and all of these layers
0: it's getting worse now i think when um when we look at the the increasing habit of uh, things like soldering ram to a motherboard on a laptop right. um things like what i consider to be pretty pretty egregious uh hardware requirements for running windows 11 for example like Absolutely. You know, we heard from tons of people. I I heard from tons of people who had bought new PCs or laptops in like 2017 or 2018 that they couldn't run Windows 11, which is ridiculous when you consider. Yeah, I'm running um, Elementary OS on a 2013 Mac. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, and that's a that's a whole another level to uh, to all this, isn't it? It's the it's the e waste factor, and it's. If your software, you know, if, if, if ocular can run on hardware that's 15 years old and Adobe Reader can only run on hardware that's seven years old, well then obviously, obviously we know who wins that, that battle, <laughs> right? It's just like, it, you know, the more, the more developers that come together and the more companies and software that um, allow you to run their product on older hardware means less e-waste. It's that simple.
1: Absolutely, yes, and absolutely. And this is where I think you know we need to start. So, document what are the minimum system requirements. You know, make that part of uh, software uh, uh, documentation. Um, you know, make it so it's it's clear that this software can run on older hardware, and uh, make that part of the the consumer side of things that you choose software because it is more. Um, resource efficient because it allows you to keep your hardware in use. Uh, That's part of it for sure. But I do, I think we need data. We need, we need to start getting data. We need to start getting um, um, documentation. I I would say starting to do that will, will help push this field forward. Um, And then of course, data-driven decisions about how you're engineering your software, choosing um, to do things in ways that reduce energy consumption, even if the hardware can support, the, the more resource-hungry choices uh, choosing for the the less resource-hungry one. Because right now, we, in many cases, you don't even have to think about it, right? The hardware is getting more and more powerful that we can just keep making the software less and less efficient.
0: I knew I knew that we were headed in the wrong direction when um, maybe it was 2014. Uh, I did this, uh, this PC build at Forbes, and it was doing a mini ITX form factor. And for those who don't know, it's just a... Um, I mean the ITX is just a smaller motherboard. You know like basically it was the size of a shoebox. It was a PC the size of a shoebox that could still run any game at 1080p maxed out. And then <laughs> I always thought at that point in the in the 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 PC uh gaming life cycle, I always thought it was just going to get better and better and better, right? And more efficient and more efficient and smaller and smaller because that is where you see laptops going. But then <laughs> fast forward to like last year when Nvidia's like, "Oh yeah, you're going to need a 900 uh, watt power supply for this and it's a triple slot card and uh they're going to need to make, you know, special uh, large cases for this and you need this adapter to go from your like, are you kidding me? How did we where did we go wrong?
1: But but let's 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 try to stick with some positive things. I mean, I do think One of the benefits of uh, the user-oriented aspects of free and open source software, I mean, we can do something about this, right? We can actually influence and we can shape the development of this software and we can start thinking about how we use our time and energy for making software more sustainable, more efficient. Um, And that's a really important factor when you think about how do you make things change is what can I realistically do? And we can do this. We have decades of experience of organizing thousands of contributors. This is not, this is not out, outside of our reach. That's incredible.
0: It is incredible. And you, you mentioned that the first steps are, would be gathering the data. Where can people take action? How, how can people contribute to that first step?
1: If you want to follow a you know, at least an initial step towards some sort of standard methodology, you can take a look at the methodology that um, we wrote about in the in our handbook, um, the KDE Eco Handbook, um, which is oriented to the Blue Angel, um, and um, you know follow that method, and that gives at least a way to start um, comparing software. Not necessarily for the sense of saying this is you know um, they win, um, but just so we can start to have some standards. The method that that we've been focused on our external power meters but that's not the only method you can use software-based estimates of energy consumption there are various tools Um, i'm not very familiar with them i know one that's being developed by a uh, a startup here in berlin um, called the um, green coding berlin and they've developed a nice tool that um, allows you to get um, all kinds of data um, it's free and open source. Um, you can check out; it's called the Green Metrics tool. Yeah. But I, I do think getting some standards, and I think starting to think about how we can standardize the methodology, at least in some level, so that we can all have the same conversation.
0: I mean, I, I think that I think that you know what you're doing is the first important step is having the conversation with people, people like me, people like the attendees of LAS or Fostum or you know everywhere else that you go. And I think that's really important. And uh, I just want to applaud you for that because. You know, someone who, like me, who is a tech enthusiast, never thought about any of these angles until I heard you talk about it.
1: Yep. Yeah, awesome. That's great. I mean, this is what, this is, and your enthusiasm is infectious. Like, it's great to see what you're doing uh, online and uh, Mastodon, the posts that you've been posting about the work uh, that you've been doing, just trying to see what what am I, you know, what am I consuming when I do this and that. Another thing, and I, and I, and I'm, so the project, the blau Angle Performance Project ended in March, um, and I'm no longer, uh, working for that particular project. So I'm saying this independently of uh, um, of my job. Um, eco-certification is something that um, I think is seriously worth considering for free and open source software developers. As I try to point out in my talk is that you don't have to be free and open source software to get the Blue Angel eco-label, but we have a huge advantage. Um, given the inherent qualities of free and open source software, which are recognized in the criteria. And I think it would be nice. Right now, Ocular is the only um, eco-certified pro- uh, product, and it would be wonderful if we, if eco-labels can be a mechanism to encourage um, adoption in places like government and um, for companies that are interested in, um, in sustainability initiatives. And, I mean, beyond the fact that I want to see free software everywhere, um, if we can get more software that supports interoperability and open standards for data formats, right? how would that change the, 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 the environment in which we're computing? Right? Just the fact that you can uh, use an open standard, um, which is one of the requirements of the Blue Angel, that your software product supports open standards, um, means that you have so much more options. And the, the to see people locked into these these systems, which are not necessarily efficient systems, right? I mean the the, 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 the product that rhymes with bird, you know, assuming that's what, what it was it was being measured, right, that's four times the energy consumption. Now every office that's running that is consuming, you know, so much energy just because they can't choose to change. So I think eco labels can push certain markets at least in certain directions. And I think it could be something that would be beneficial to to think about if you're a software developer. The process is clearly defined. The lab that we're setting up can be used um, for data-driven decision-making and software development, but also for eco-label certification. Um, So hopefully that will be available um, to free software developers uh, online. Um, It is available uh, today. Um just need to organize with me or someone who's located in Berlin to go to the lab and do it. Um but hopefully it'll be available to everyone very soon.
0: Yeah, because you mentioned someone's were working on a uh someone's working on a remote uh access to that, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we want to I- incorporate it into the, the CI C D pipeline so that when you you know make a commit, you can then, if you want, uh run a uh, defined uh, script that will then give you some report back about how that changes your energy consumption.
0: Wow. That's a great, that's a fantastic idea.
1: Yeah, and these are the kinds of things that, you know, we can start incorporating these kinds of uh, metrics into our development process. We have to think about how, you know, there's embodied car- carbon in every software product, you know, all the energy is consumed by the development process.
0: Oh my god. I didn't even think about that either.
1: And these are the kinds of things that we, if we can start getting data on it, would actually be fascinating to think about what is the embodied carbon of this of this software product of this release?
0: And the tools, as as they do in open source, will uh, get more efficient and more elegant, and hopefully more widespread, and you know more feature rich and and all of that. So, well, there's a lot of resources here. Uh, I think that people can can tap into starting starting with I would say the the KDE Eco Handbook, which I've skimmed through and it's excellent. So I'm going to put links to that, uh, that Joanna Mall article, the, uh, the, the reports that you mentioned, the Green Metrics tool, all of that stuff will be in the show notes for this episode. And um, I would implore you guys, if you're interested, to talk about it. Talk about it with other people. Share the data. Uh, learn the tools that are out there right now. And, and maybe talk to Joseph, too. Uh, is, there, <laughs> is there anywhere that, that you'd like people to reach out to you?
1: So, if they want to reach out to the larger KDE Eco community, um, there's the mailing list and the Matrix Room, um, both of which are linked to at the eco.kde.org website. If you have questions, you know, someone there can they can answer it. And if they can't, I'm sure they'll get a good conversation out of it. Um, if they want to reach out to me, um, they're more than welcome to joseph at kde.org. So, maybe also to add, um, the KDE Eco is sort of an umbrella term for these various projects. Um, I mentioned the Blauer for FOSS. There's also the Free and Open Source Energy Efficiency Project. Now there's a Sustainable Software Goal at KDE. The Remote Access uh, Portal is also a part of this KDE Eco initiative. Um, but KDE Eco is really much more, you know, the Free and Open Source Energy Efficiency pro- Project is not the KDE Efficiency Project, right? We want this to be something that's part of free software. This is not, um, it's under the KDE umbrella, Um, KDE is fully behind it, um, but we want to get as many people, uh, you know, having their own initiatives, collaborating with us, um, doing their own thing, uh, any way that we can, you know, make this part of our culture. um, So that we think of free and open source software in terms of privacy, we think about it in terms of transparency, and we think about it in terms of sustainability.
0: Yeah, and all of that is is very much in the spirit of where I met you, was the Linux App Summit, which is, for people who don't know, is is co-hosted by KDE and by GNOME. So, yeah. uh, you know, two, two quote-unquote competitors, uh, you know, joining forces to, to make stuff better.
1: And there's lots of great GNOME developers doing really great stuff. Also, there's, you know, Philip Withnall has like an analysis of, energy consumption related to their uh, conferences and, and uh, things that we want to also start looking at in KDE. Um, you know, what is, the, what is the cost of our in-person meetups and things like this. There's a great talk by, is it Tobias Bernard, I think, who has the post-apocalyptic computing, um, looking at uh, what happens post-collapse computing, I think. is And it's, it's actually, it, that's an intense talk.
0: So I hope that I hope that this conversation has not convinced everyone to uh, recycle their computers and you know go live in a cabin in the woods. But maybe that wouldn't be such a terrible thing. Um, but if you do, you know, if you do that, if you go off the grid, keep in touch with people. It's it's good to have a little bit of social interaction. Um, but yeah, I I will keep you guys posted on, um, especially when I do more of this gaming testing. I think that's a big contributor to my personal energy waste, or at least it was. Um, I, I really do think I'm going to switch exclusively to just gaming on the Steam Deck. Not to mention, like, running, you know, it's going to be, it's gonna be uh, 35, 40 degrees here pretty soon, Celsius, so, I don't know, 90 to 105 Fahrenheit. Um, and no one wants to be running these big, power-hungry, heat-emitting beasts in the summer, right? Just, grab a steam deck grab a power efficient laptop you don't have to play everything at 4k 120 i think we're going to keep this conversation flowing and hopefully we can get other people uh in the mix and what i want to do is i want to throw it out to the community now to everyone listening if you have questions about any of this i want you to email me and i will make sure that those questions get answered by the right people and that we kind of do a uh we we come back you know in in a certain amount of time and and have those questions answered for you. So my email is in the show notes, but it is Linux Everyone at pm. That's a that's a Proton Mail address. So Linux Everyone at pm. If you have a question, just send it, and I'll and I'll route it to the right people. Joseph, thank you so so much, and um, thank you you're for fighting the good fight. Most of all,
1: oh, thanks for thanks for your support, and thanks for inviting me to to talk with you, and to, for all your work you're doing with. Uh, linux for everyone
0: but i guess we'll say goodbye for now and uh you've got an open door to come back later if uh you know if there's any developments that we should talk about then just pop me an email and we'll get you back on the show or get you somewhere get you in front of a microphone somewhere
1: let's 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 measure some software and look at the data and start to talk about what we're seeing it'd be interesting to you know in, in the spirit of of uh um transparency and and trying to make some of those those initial steps to get data.
0: Agreed. All right, man. Well, thank you so much.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: That was unquestionably a lot to digest and pretty heavy stuff as well. I want to remind you that I'll have links to everything that we discussed in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 58. And if you have ideas uh about the future of this show, email me linux for everyone at pm.me and the same goes for people who have questions about this whole software sustainability thing whether they're technical or general i will route them to the right people and we will do a follow up segment in a future show and one more thing everybody i really want to continue the software spotlight segment that i used to do If you have something that you love that came out within the last year, please tell me about it. I want to get caught up and I want to start sharing that stuff again. And that is going to do it for the first episode of Linux for everyone in like a very, well, a very, very long time. Too long. Thank you for sticking around. Thank you for listening. Thank you for everything. Until we chat again, you all take care and take care of each other.